We start a new worship series this morning, actually exploring the idea of worship and what it means for us to be a community of worship who come together and worship God together in various different forms. And so we're going to be looking over the next four weeks at what worship means in our tradition. This morning we're looking at Luke chapter 24 as Jesus appears to his two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? He asked them, What things? They replied, The things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said but they did not see him. Then they said to him, then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them things about himself in all the scriptures. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it's almost evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour they got up and they returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread, the word of the Lord. So we are starting this new series today on worship. Uh, It's called Sing and Rejoice because we tend to think, when we think of worship, what do we tend to think of? Yeah, she's cute. I understand that. I'm up here though. I used to be cute. I'm not cute anymore. What do we think of when we think of the word worship? What comes to mind? Someone throw something out. 
Music. Music is one of the first things we think of, right? And we're going to deal with music. We're going to talk with music in the third week of this series. But what I wanted to do is reframe the idea of worship to be kind of the, the bigger picture of worship. What is worship? It's not just here in this sanctuary, and it's not just the actions that we do on Sunday mornings. Worship is bigger than that. And yet, what we do here on Sunday mornings is a representation of what worship is in all aspects aspects of worship. And so we're going to talk a little bit about our worship service this morning, and we're going to talk a little bit about how it's intentionally designed in our tradition, the Reformed tradition, specifically Presbyterian, to be exactly that for us, that it's on Sunday mornings a reminder of what the rest of our week should be. So we're looking at this idea that we are a people with a story. We are a people with a story. And next week, we're going to see how this story is represented and remembered in symbols. How many of you guys can see a symbol right now in our church? You should raise your hand because unless you're blind, um, but even if you're blind, you could touch the pews and the people around you. There's symbols even in that stuff, all right? But we have a cross up here. We have communion down on the communion table. We have medallions of um, different symbols of the Christian faith all around our sanctuary. There's all kinds of symbols. And then we have our worship, our lives, our story that is, a, is accompanied by a soundtrack. Music has been important to the Christian life and to worship since the very, very beginning. And in fact, even before Christianity and Judaism, music was incredibly important to the worship of the people. And the Psalms, the book of the Psalms, one of the biggest books in the Bible, is really the people praising the Lord in song. All of these were written to be really set in songs. And the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, knew these songs and they would sing them in their daily lives. They would sing them as they went up to the temple to worship at different festivals. And they knew these songs. In fact, when we see Jesus quote the Old Testament, most of the time he's quoting the Psalms. And I think many of the times where he's quoting the Psalms, he's probably, because he was raised as a good Jewish boy, right, singing them. And you know that Jesus quotes the Psalm from the cross? So get that into your mind. Jesus maybe sung hymns of praise, Psalms of praise, Psalms of, of um, feeling um, lost and hopeless from the cross. And then last week, we're going to see how we, as a people of, of the story, live out the story in a set of practices. So we're going to be going through these next weeks looking at this stuff. But this morning, I really wanted to look at story. And so we wanted to look at this passage where Jesus has died. He's resurrected, but all of his disciples haven't seen him yet. And so there's only a few that have kind of encountered him. And there's these rumors kind of going around. But if you're these two walking on the path with Jesus— and you hadn't seen Jesus for yourself yet, and you just heard the rumors, and people in grief can believe anything, right? And they could hallucinate that maybe he was there. So they don't, not quite sure until they see him break the bread, and then they really know who he is. But in this moment, when Jesus is with them, and they clearly have lost their hope, they said, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel, right? They've lost their hope. What does Jesus do? Does Jesus preach a three-point sermon with alliteration 
and funny little antics so that they can remember it. No. Does Jesus write a doctrinal thesis where he outlines clearly a theological point and he goes through it A by B and C and D to show the logic of the gospel and why logically and reasonably they should believe? No. What does he do? He, he tells the story. He tells the story and specifically he re tells the story. And more specifically, he reframes the story in light of his own ministry, his own death, and his own resurrection. Okay? We see that he is sharing more than just some doctrinal thesis or some ideas or preaching a sermon. He is sharing the story of God that is meant to inform these two people that he's walking with story as well. So story is something that's incredibly important to the Christian faith. In fact, as Presbyterians, we're, the way that we worship is really all around the idea of story. When we come together and we worship in this sanctuary, good Reformed worship will center everything around the Word. And in fact, this passage of Emmaus is a great example of Reformed worship because we start with a gathering under the Word. A gathering under the Word. These are the things we do at the beginning of our worship to gather underneath the Word and to prepare ourselves to hear the Word. And so we do things like the call to worship. We do things like an opening hymn of pray or praise. We do things like confession. All of these things are meant to prepare us to hear the Word of God. And you see that in the road to Emmaus, right? They are remembering the scriptures. They're, they're kind of contemplating and talking about the things that happened, and they're kind of confessing that they had lost their hopes. You see them preparing themselves, not even knowingly, to hear the story retold to them by Jesus. The next thing that we do in worship is we proclaim the word. We proclaim the word. And so obviously the things we do in that is we read scripture. We do a children's message. And then we listen to a long, boring sermon from me. Um, hopefully this morning I can cut it down so that we can get out of here reasonably in time. Um, but these are the things we do when we're proclaiming the word. Now Jesus does this, right? Jesus does this because he opens the scriptures and he shows them all the way from the back, from Moses and the prophets, all the way through. He takes them through the story again so that they can re-see that story in light of what he's accomplished in his death and his resurrection. He's proclaiming them, to them the word. And then we seal the word. Now, this is something that is done later in the story in Emmaus when we see Jesus sitting at the table with them breaking bread, right? And what is that representative of? What symbol is there in that breaking of the bread? It's communion. Now, a few of us uh, went and saw a guy, Leonard Sweet, uh, who is a ch church futurist, theologian, thinker. Um, and goes, he was speaking at a church in western Pennsylvania, and he preached on this sermon the week after Easter. 
And one of the things I love about Lynn and his talking about this passage in the road to Emmaus is he brings a new dynamic into understanding why their eyes were opened at the end. And he says, you know, in those days they would have been wearing long robes. The robes would have been covering their hands. So as Jesus was walking with them, he might have been had a hood on or something or whatever. Who knows why they couldn't recognize his face? Maybe because his body is different in the resurrection and it wasn't quite exactly the Jesus that they knew physically. So there was something that was going on there. But when they get together and they break bread, Jesus takes the bread and what does he do? What would happen with his sleeves? And then what would be revealed? His wounds. And so it was in that moment when his sleeves go down and that his wounds are revealed that they see the symbols of his suffering and they recognize who he is. All right, and so we see this in the sealing of the word in, in our worship is usually communion and baptism. Um, oops. I've skipped up. Now, communion we always do after I preach, right? We always do it after, which is always supposed to be an action done after proclamation. Baptism, just because Presbyterians are also incredibly pragmatic, right? We usually do earlier uh, in the service just because it, we want the children to be in here, and the children often leave um, during baptism time if we would do it afterwards. The next part is we respond to the word. We respond to the word. Okay, and in these things, we do the offering, we do the affirmation of faith, and we often say a prayer. Things that we do when we respond to God's word being preached. Now, notice offering is in red. This is a pet peeve of mine. If I could, I'd move the offering later, but every time I've tried, I get lots of pushback from you all. It should be a response to the word, but we just pretend like it's a response. We just do it earlier. Again, remember, we're pragmatic as Presbyterians, so we do it earlier in the worship. And then finally, at the end, we are sent out in the word. And these are the kind of things we do for that. We do a charge and we do a benediction. And so we see at the end of the service, we're sending you out in the world, prepared with the word of God to carry that word back into the world. And so this is how Reformed worship is. We gather under the word, we proclaim the word, we seal the word occasionally with sacraments, we respond to the word, and then we're sent out in the word. And so you see this idea of the word, just replace that with the word story, because that's what it is. And you can see that Presbyterian worship is all centered around the story of God. Preparing ourselves to hear the story of God, listening to the proclamation of the story of God, sealing the story of God and the symbols of that story, and then being sent out or responding to that story, and then being sent out in that story to live our part of the story in the world. Now, story is important for more than just Jesus, more than just Presbyterian worship. If you notice the way that the early disciples preached Peter at Pentecost, what did he do? Was it a five-point sermon with alliteration? No. Did he have PowerPoint? No. He told the story, right? He shared with them the story of Israel and how Jesus fulfilled the promises that God had made to Israel in that story and how there's a new story being written in this person, Jesus. And so he's preaching the story. Paul, the way that Paul preaches, Paul tells so many stories, a guy falls asleep and falls out of a window and dies. 
So next time you complain about one of my long sermons, I'll just remind you of that story. Paul preached with story all the time. In fact, we just finished a series where we looked at Paul's life biographically, and we followed along with a book by N.T. Wright, where he wrote this long biography of Paul. One of the things I kind of skipped over in my retelling of his book, just because I didn't know how to fit it in, was how often Paul retells the story of Israel from the beginning. It's like a script every time when he's appearing before any crowd and he's sharing the gospel. He's retelling the story of Israel, the story of Jesus, the story of his own experience and encounter with Jesus, and his, his life following after Jesus. He preaches with story because it's story that is at the center of the people of God. But of course, we tend to look at the story as encapsulated in a book, right? It's the scriptures. It's these words written down on a page. And that is an incredibly important part of the story. Because if somebody didn't write it down and pass it along to us, then it would have been lost. And so it's incredibly important, the scriptures, to this story. But it is not the only part of the story. If we think that the story ends at the book of Revelation and it's closed and there's no more relevance to God's story being lived out today in our community, then we've missed the point of the whole story in those scriptures. Your life and our community is a re telling a reframing of God's story in the scriptures for our community that we exist in. And if we miss that, if we forget that, then our worship is going to be dry and bland, and it doesn't matter how great our music is, or how great the preaching is, or how great everything else is, how often we end on time, whatever. It doesn't matter if we forget that we are living the story. And so what about your story? What's your story? Have you looked at your story? Have you thought about your story? Have you read the scriptures and let the scriptures reframe your story for you? Go back, read the story of Israel again, and I defy you, I dare you to go and read that and not see your own life in the story of Israel. Every single time I read the story of Israel, I go, oh, I do that every day. And I'm reminded about my own sinfulness, my own need for God, right? If you read the Gospels and you see the disciples, if you don't see yourself in one of those disciples doing something foolish or something great, then I don't know where you've been. This is the story of humanity, and this story of humanity impacts and informs your story. Read the scriptures anew and think of how your story is being lived out in the image of the story God has given to us. And how God is using you and using your story to reframe that story for the people in your life who don't know him. So that they might come to know him through your retelling of the story. They might come to know him because they see his story, they see the author in you. Story is important because we, as the people of God, live out the story of God. Now this here, these symbols that we're about to remember, we're going to talk about these next week, which is really poor planning on my part. We would have done communion next week if I had thought this through better. 
But these are some of the most important symbols of the story, right? On this table, such depth of story that have ever been told on the entire earth. Forget Marvel Cinematic Universe. Forget Lord of the Rings. Forget all of the great stories, Transformers, Michael Bay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Forget all of that. The greatest story ever told is represented right here on this table. When God, who loved his creatures so much, even in their rebellion, he became one of them so that he might live a perfect life on their behalf and then be put to death for it, atoning for our sins, our imperfections, and then raising from the dead so that we might have the promise of new life in him. That's what we come to celebrate at this table, the story of Jesus.